Well, uh, it is a joy to speak this evening and to be part, to do part three in our little study about the miracle of Christmas. And I am honored to be following Abner and Nathan in this study that I hope has been encouraging to you so far. I uh, thank you to our pastor and to the elders for giving me this opportunity. And I'm delighted to go back into the Gospel of John. And as our pastor said in his commentary, this is one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. So it's going to take quite a bit of time for us to unpack it and to fully understand exactly what the incarnation means from John's perspective. I've told uh, Abner multiple times, please preach slower. You have so much to say, please let us digest it. Well, I'm going to have to pull on Abner tonight and speak fast and be a hypocrite in order to get us through all of the material. So go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 1. And as you do that, I'm sure you know that there are many man-made masterpieces that attempt to capture the glory of God. If you consider songs and art and various poems that Christians have written and individuals have made in order to reflect their love and affection for God and thereby demonstrate the glory of God even in creation. There are few madman masterpieces that we can consider, such as European cathedrals, churches that were built by architects and contractors in order to convey their piety and their worship of God and their desire to communicate the majesty and the glory of God. One such cathedral is the cathedral in Milan, Italy. Currently, it is the seat of the Archbishop of Milan, It actually is built on the same site as the ancient cathedral in Milan, the one where Ambrose baptized Augustine back in the year 387. Today's cathedral is the third largest in the world of all cathedrals. It's the second largest in Europe, and it's the largest in Italy proper. It is 126,000 square feet, which is five times larger than this building, and it can hold 40,000 people. It is located at the very center of Milan. And if you've been there and tried to take a picture of the front facade, you'd know that you have to walk back a significant amount of uh, foot spaces in order to capture the, the facade, just the front facade of that building. It is majestic. And at the risk of never being asked to preach again, I'm gonna encourage you to Google Milan Cathedral just to get the sense of what I'm talking about. I'm going to describe it for you, but I think a picture would be helpful. As long as you promise you won't Google anything else. Just a picture of the Milan Cathedral, no sports scores, and your neighbor can keep you accountable. It took 600 years to build this cathedral. 600 continuous years, which makes it the longest construction project in human history of any church or any cathedral. It became a site and a center of innovation, an exchange of ideas in that time period because the visionary lord of Milan, Gian Visconti, decided to direct the architects toward a new innovation, toward a new white marble that he imported from Lake Maggiore instead of taking the red brick from Lombardy. And so... This introduced a new Gothic style into construction of the 14th century. 78 different architects were involved in the design of this cathedral. 
sculptors and stonecutters came from all over Europe. The decision ultimately led to the crossroads of innovation and engineering and cultures coming together and sharing the diverse ideas and style in order to build this cathedral. Even Leonardo da Vinci was involved in the construction of this cathedral because he designed the dome. King Napoleon directed the facade that ultimately would symbolize the grandeur of this building. One of the most striking elements of this beautiful building is the stained glass windows. Three of them are the biggest in the world. This cathedral houses the largest organ in Italy. The five naves, with central nave being the highest, is 147 feet high. There are 40 pillars that are in this cathedral that stand high of 80 feet high. 135 spires, more than any other church in the world, each spire is stopped off with a sculpture of a biblical figure. There are 135 135 gargoyles in this building, 700 figures, and 31 59 statues, more statues than any other cathedral or church in the world. There are five sets of doors that welcome you into this cathedral. The center door alone weighs 37 tons. And there are 164 windows. You can climb to the top of this cathedral. And the arena that which you can walk is the largest arena of all the buildings and churches, religious buildings that is, in the world. You can see the city of Milan. You can actually see to the Alps. This cathedral is finally finished. In 1965, almost 600 years of continuous construction. And people that have evaluated this building have said, this truly reflects the glory of God. This is a tribute to God. Now, the Milan Cathedral is one of many cathedrals in the world. And many people that participated in that work attempted to capture and convey the glory of God. But it doesn't matter how long a building takes to build, how many spires it has, how many gargoyles it has, how many statues, how large the doors are, how massive it is, nothing can fully capture the glory of God. And when we open the Gospel of John, the very first chapter, it introduces us to the one who does capture and convey perfectly the glory of God. Because as John opens his Christmas story, he takes us to heaven. And in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, he introduces the word and the only of the gospel writers that conveys Jesus or introduces Jesus as the word, the eternal word. John takes us to heaven to say, this is who we're talking about. The one who was coexistent with the Father. The one who is the co-creator of the world with the Father. This is the one who is the center of the Christmas story. Our, the morning's sermon from our pastor gives us a snapshot about the glory and the praise and the honor that Jesus experienced in heaven prior to him coming down and taking on a human nature and setting that aside in his human nature. And so John takes us in the first three verses from heaven 
introducing us to the word of life, to the word of God that was eternal. And then in verse 14, he now focuses on the Christmas story. On the incarnation, he says the following. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a rank higher than I do, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father He has explained him. As we consider the Christmas story from John chapter 1, I'd like for us to try to grasp the essence and the magnitude of what it meant for Jesus to become a man. For the Son, the eternal Son, to take on human flesh. For the second member of the Trinity to ultimately walk on this earth in a human body. Mark Jones writes the following. The incarnation is God's greatest wonder. One that no creature could ever have imagined. It has just been called the miracle of all miracles. James Usher of Ireland says the following. The incarnation is the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, When the Son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another. Herman Bamink, a theologian, says, It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in, uncrea- in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. The apostle Paul had the same sense of wonder about the incarnation when he wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16 the following. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh. The incarnation is a miracle, the miracle of all miracles. We cannot fully comprehend the incarnation. But John tries to help us to understand what it meant for the eternal word of God to take on human flesh. And as we look at verses 14 through 18, I'd like for us to reflect on five aspects of the incarnation of this son. Five aspects of the incarnation of the eternal son. The first being the possession of human nature. The incarnation, the first aspect of the incarnation is that the son took on a human nature, which is the first statement in verse 14. The word became flesh. Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John introduces us to the word of God. And we learn from Scripture that the entire Trinity was involved in creating a body for the second member. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, A body you have prepared for me, referring to the Father. 
So now we know from Hebrews 10 that the father was directly involved in creating a physical body for his son. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So now the Holy Spirit is directly involved in the creation of the body of, for the Son. James Usher of Ireland says this again, Mary's womb became the bride chamber where the Spirit knit that indissoluble knot, knot between the Holy Spirit to fashion the human nature and his deity. It's a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit involved in creating the body of Christ in Mary's womb. And when you think about the incarnation, don't think about it as the metamorphosis like a caterpillar goes through. From a cocoon to a butterfly. We're not talking about evolution. We are talking about the word assuming human flesh. We're talking about addition, not subtraction of divinity. We're not talking about separation from deity. Jesus did not cease to be God. He did not reduce his divinity to assume a human nature. One commentator says the logos or the word became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. So we're talking about addition, not subtraction. And this addition was irreversible. The eternal second member of the Trinity, the Son, will forever possess a human body alongside his divine nature. So John is presenting for us the hypostatic union. Jesus is truly God and truly man. In Jesus, the divine and human natures coexist permanently from the moment of the incarnation. This is the miracle of all miracles. This is the humiliation and the humbling of the second member of the Trinity. Abner explained that to us very carefully two weeks ago. This is how much God loves his creation. That he took on a human body in order to be with his creation. To fully identify with man. And at marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will have that body. The glorified body. As we celebrate with him in our own glorified bodies. You see, the divine word, who was in the eternal communion with the Father has now taken on human flesh, and John says, to dwell with us. More literally, to sojourn with us. Mark Jones again says, the God-man now acts according to both natures. So when we read in the Bible about Jesus doing certain things, we need to be very careful and clear about what nature we're talking about doing those certain things. We're talking about one person with two natures. So in his human nature, Jesus, the person, he thirsted, he ate, he rested, he wept, he died. In his divinity... He is the preexistent one. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He upholds all things. He possesses the dominion over all things. But because we're talking about one person, Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, can say the following that God 
redeemed the church of God that he purchased with his own blood. God cannot die. But because God was acting in Jesus according to Jesus' human nature, Jesus died in his human nature. In Jude chapter 1 verse 5, it says this, Jesus, having once saved the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus did not exist in the wilderness. He was God. The second member, the eternal son, took on the flesh in in human history much later than the Exodus. But the way that statement is true is because in his human nature, in his divine nature rather, in the time of the Exodus, he did participate in the salvation of his people. This is a mystery. We can't fully explain the hypostatic union. We can't fully explain how the two natures coexist in one person. But we do affirm is that the scripture affirms those truths about Jesus in his human nature and in his divine nature. Here's a thought for Christmas. That while Jesus, the baby, was lying in a manger, completely dependent on Mary for survival... At the same time, he was upholding the universe in his divine nature. That's the miracle of Christmas that we worship. We worship the Son. Stephen Charnock writes this. What a wonder is it that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. That the thundering creator be a weeping baby and a suffering man. These are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon earth and the angels in heaven. That's the mystery of the incarnation and the miracle of all miracles. Is that in order to identify with us fully, God, the eternal son, took on human flesh. And as you read the stories in the gospels about Jesus acting, in his divine or in his human nature, please do not minimize the details of Jesus acting in his human nature. When it says that he thirsted, he thirsted like you and I thirst. When he was hungry, he was hungry like you and I are hungry. When he was tired and fell asleep in the middle of a storm, that gives us a perspective of how tired he was. When Jesus wept by the the tomb of Lazarus, or when he wept in Gethsemane, he was under such emotional duress that it moved him to tears. And when he was tempted by the devil after 40 days of fasting, the temptation to make bread out of stone would have been a real temptation. Don't minimize the details of the Gospel stories conveying to us Jesus acting in his human nature. In John chapter 12, it talks about Jesus contemplating the cross. 
And in verse 27, it says his soul was in anguish. The upper room hadn't happened yet. Gethsemane hadn't happened yet. He was simply anticipating the cross, and his soul was in anguish. And we know how much anguish he experienced because when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he collapses and he's on the ground, face down, weeping and wailing and asking the Father to find another way. That's Jesus in his human nature, anticipating separation from his Father, in his human nature, anticipating the death A horrible death on the cross. He did all that. He took on the human body in order, according to Hebrews 2, to fully sympathize with us. To understand what it's like for us to be tempted. And to become in all things a merciful and faithful high priest. That's why he took on a human body. This is what it meant for the Son to assume human flesh. Flesh that he will possess forever. Just before the service started, we were in the elders' prayer room praying for a multitude of prayer requests in this church that are happening even this weekend. And we pray sincerely and we ask God to work in your lives. But Hebrews 2 says... That Jesus is the most sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize much better than any human around you. So the aspect that we want to highlight first about the incarnation is that Jesus truly took on a human body. But the second aspect that we see again in verse 14 is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is to say he was present with man. The presence of God with man is the second aspect of the incarnation. As John defines what it means for the second member of the Trinity to assume a human nature, he describes it as taking on a tent. That's the word there, he dwelt among us. It's as if he took on a tent as a body. Now he does this intentionally. Because John reaches back to the Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle in the Exodus story. As Israel left Egypt, God commanded for them at the end of Exodus to build a tabernacle. It would become the place where God would meet with man. Where Moses would enter the tabernacle, the glory of God would enter the tabernacle, and there was a meeting that would take place in that tabernacle. God would commune with Moses, and through those conversations, he would dictate what Moses was to do with God's people. And then God would ultimately appear and be with his people in the pillar of a cloud, in the pillar of a fire that would also fill the tabernacle. You can see that in Exodus chapter 30. So John's description of the word taken on a tent reaches back. It really echoes the story of Exodus. God dwelling with his people. But there's also a second implication. When the Apostle Paul talks about our bodies deteriorating, he says it's like a tent. And Paul was a tent maker. And so for him, that imagery was very vivid, very personal. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about our bodies deteriorating like a tent that's being used up. When the Apostle Peter, reflecting on his upcoming death in 2 Peter chapter 1... He says, 
I'm about to lay aside this tent, referring to his body. So John is infusing both meanings into that phrase when he says Jesus dwelling with man like the tabernacle in the Old Testament introduces us to the meeting place between God and man in Christ. But secondly, he truly took on a human body like we have, like our tent as described by Peter and Paul. He's adopting the language of the Old and the New Testament in that simple phrase. And notice this, that John distinguishes between the people that saw the physical Christ versus those who believe in him and haven't seen him. In verse 14, he says, we saw his glory, right in the middle of the verse. In verse 16, he says, we have all received grace upon grace. The addition of all in verse 16 pulls us into the experience of grace upon grace. Whereas he saw the, great, the glory in verse 14, veiled in human flesh, we don't. Not having lived with Christ in the first century. So John is careful to distinguish between those time periods. He does the same at the beginning of chapter 1 of 1 John. He talks about himself seeing and hearing. And touching Christ. And then he says, but everyone is included in the fellowship with Christ now that he's gone. So John emphasizes the presence of God with men through the language of the tent being with us. It's as if God continues that image of being with us, his people, in Christ, the New Testament version of a tent. How does that presence of God with us affect us. That takes us to our third aspect. And that is we get to see the glory of God, the perception of the glory of God, the perception of the glory of God. And that is in verse 14 again. The word became flesh. It dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John mentions glory twice in verse 14, side by side, which indicates the significance of this concept, not only in this little paragraph, but to the rest of the gospel. Because in the ancient times when books were written, the prologue or the introduction to the book would include the most important themes that the author attempted to communicate to the readers. And so for John to mention grace, uh, glory rather, twice in verse 14, he says, this is a topic you should pay attention to. And it will reappear. And it reappears 40 more times after the first two uses. Because it becomes such a central theme for John to, to capture what he's trying to communicate to us about the glorious Christ and the incarnate Christ. In the Old Testament... Glory carries the meaning of weight, prestige, importance. In the Greek world, glory has to do with visible splendor. John brings both elements into this passage. Now, in verse 17, Moses is mentioned. So by mentioning Moses, he wants the reader to go back to the Old Testament and to find a link between glory in verse 14 and glory back in the period of Moses. The very first appearance of God's glory in the Bible is Exodus chapter 16, 
verses 7, and then repeat it in verse 10. The Israelites have now left Egypt. They are wandering in the wilderness, and they begin to grumble, and they're grumbling that they have no meat. And so God promises them meat and manna. And in that passage in Exodus 16, it says, And the glory of the Lord was revealed. That's the first time Moses had any interaction with the glory of God in the cloud. It was veiled. Subsequently, in Exodus 24, after the Ten Commandments are given to Moses, after the law is given, Moses goes up the mountain, and the glory of God appears as a consuming fire. Another image. Another expression of the glory of God being veiled. That's Exodus 24, 15 through 17. In Exodus 40, the glory of God would then fill the tabernacle, and they would carry that tabernacle with them from place to place as they migrated from Egypt to Canaan for 40 years. In 1 Kings chapter 2, that glory would then fill the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 10, because of Israel's sin, that glory departs. And then in Ezekiel chapter 43, that glory returns into the temple that will be present in the millennial kingdom. So consistently, the Bible presents the glory of God symbolically. It attempts to help us understand that God's glory has to be veiled. In Exodus 33 verse 18, Moses asks God to see his glory and God responds saying, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That's in verse 20. So now we understand that God is veiling his own glory from humans because he doesn't want us to die. It's a protective mechanism. But instead, God answers Moses' request in this way. He says, I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock. And I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to show you my backside. And when that happens in Exodus 34, in the following chapter, the request is made in chapter 33. God answers it in chapter 34. And this is what happens when the glory of God passes by Moses. God passes by and declares, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So God's revelation of his glory is to express his character audibly. This is a flavor of my glory, God says to Moses. Listen to my character. Listen to my description of the perfections that indicate who I am. But now, in John 1.14, it says, we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in John 1.14, this glory that was previously invisible, veiled, protected, is now made visible. But get this, it is still veiled. In the flesh of Jesus Christ. But he perfectly captures and communicates the character of God. We know this because when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 34 verse 6, he says this, I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
And those are the words that, Mo, that John pulls at the end of verse 14. Full of grace and truth. It's a literal translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. He wants the reader to go back to Exodus 34. He wants them to understand that the manifestation of the glory of God in the face of Christ is the reflection of the character of God. And so he says, here's a hint, the exact translation of that verse for you. Go back and read that story and see how God reveals himself and his character and thereby his glory. Now, Isaiah predicts this moment that takes place in John 1.14. Because in Isaiah chapter 40, you can flip to it for just a second. Isaiah chapter 40. If you remember the division of the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are all about the judgment that is coming on Israel and Judah and the world. And then everything changes in chapter 40 with the opening words, comfort, oh comfort my people. God is now moving the focus away from judgment in the first 39 chapters to salvation in the last chapters of that book. And in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says this. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has said it. Verses 3 and 4 are fulfilled in John the Baptist. Mark 1 tells us that. The very beginning of the gospel. That John the Baptist is the one who was the forerunner. He came to clear the path for the Lord. But verse 5 is fulfilled in John 1.14. Then, whenever the forerunner comes, that John the Baptist fulfills that, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it. That's the fulfillment that we experience in John 1.14. We see his glory, glories of the only begotten one from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and then in verse 6. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we understand why people don't appreciate nor believe in the glory of God in the face of Christ because the God of this world has blinded them from understanding it and appreciating it and loving it and submitting to it. And in verse 6, it says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, light will shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's Paul's version of John 1.14. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And how is that revealed? Toward the end of verse 14. It is full of grace and truth. The line that I mentioned earlier from Exodus 33 verse 6, of 34 verse 6. God is abounding or full in loving kindness and truth. But John goes deeper. Than Exodus 33 and 34. Because for him, glory isn't limited to God's character being revealed to Moses. In John chapter 12, and in verse 20, 
It says that some Greeks came to the feast. They came up to Philip and asked, we'd like to see Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll keep stumbling against this phrase, the hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. The hour hasn't come. Eight times that idea appears in the gospel. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, it has come. What prompted Jesus to say the hour has come? The Greeks, the Gentiles, coming, desiring salvation. And so Jesus' response to that is, the Son of Man is about to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In verse 27, he says, my soul has become troubled. And what will I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And in verse 32, Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. So now we see John linking the glory concept with the crucifixion, with the death of Christ. When Abner talked about Philippians 2, the cross was associated with humiliation. He was obedient and submissive and humble to the point of becoming a slave and then dying a horrible death on the cross. Glorification follows in verses 9 and 11 of Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every time will confess. But that's subsequent to Paul's explanation of the humiliation of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. John looks at the cross as the point of glorification. In John chapter 13, verse 31, Judas, filled with Satan and his mission to destroy the Messiah, leaves the upper room. At that moment, when he had gone out, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So what John is doing is he's connecting the idea of glory to the cross, to the death of Jesus Christ, as we saw in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. And Jesus in chapter 12 says, if I am lifted up, and by using those words, he reaches back to Isaiah 52, verse 13. It talks about the servant being lifted up, elevated, highly exalted. And then that takes us to Isaiah 53, the servant song, the suffering Messiah. But before Isaiah 53 kicks in, 52.13 says, The servant will be lifted up, he will be exalted. John picks up on Isaiah 52.53, and physically Jesus was elevated by hanging on the cross above the earth. And symbolically, he is drawing all men to himself. All men, because we're talking about the Greeks being introduced in the story, all ethnicities of men, all sorts of men. 
the Russians will be saved. <laughs> Can be saved, let me say it that way. So John is wanting the reader to go back and connect these messianic passages in the Old Testament and to say, glory isn't simply the revelation of the character of God. It also has to do with this glorification through the cross. The humiliation of Christ is also the exaltation of Christ. But there's a third element. And that is in John 17. In John 17, in verse 5... Jesus now praying to the Father shortly before the cross. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So Jesus' life of obedience and the fulfillment of the mission of God was glorifying to God. And in verse 5 he says this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's an allusion back to John 1.1. The word that coexisted with the eternal father, the creator of the universe, that's the glory that Jesus is referring to in John 17, 5. And even before the cross, he's anticipating returning to that glory. So whereas for Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that glory follows. Hebrews 12, 3, that glory follows the cross. John says, no, no, Jesus experienced that glory before the cross. He's here to fulfill a mission and thereby glorify God the Father. But then he's coming back to that glory. In his divine nature, he never set aside that glory. In his human nature, assuming the human body, he did not experience that glory for a season. That's the triadic presentation of the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel of John. And Jesus alone is qualified to represent that kind of glory to the world. Because, in verse 18 it says this, He's the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. Because in John 8, 58, he will say, Before Abraham was born, I am. Picking up from the Old Testament name of God and then God's revelation in Isaiah 40 through 48, the I am statements. Because in verse 15 of our passage, John comes in and testifies. This is the one who I spoke about. The one who's coming after me, he was six months older than Jesus, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So the witness of John is that he is the eternal one. So Jesus is the only begotten one from the Father in verse 14. He's the only begotten one of God in verse 18. Therefore, he is the only one qualified to communicate the glory of God. What what does John mean when he says he is the only begotten one? Well, some have said this is a reference to Jesus being the only son, the unique one. There, God has no other sons or daughters in the sense of eternal son. So Jesus is the alone, alone in that regard. There are four passages in the New Testament that use the same word to describe a parent who only has one child. So there's some support for that interpretation. But if we look back just a couple verses before our passage, John uses the same language to describe us being begotten by God. Look at verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And remember, in John, he's very consistent to reserve the word son only for Jesus. 
And then us as believers, we are described as children. So he calls us children of God. Those who believe in his name, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were born, or the same word, begotten. We were begotten of God. So we have a relationship with God. Now, a father doesn't bear children. So there's a unique relationship that takes place spiritually, where there's a begetting that takes place. So in our own context here, we can see that John has a more, a deeper explanation behind the word begotten. In chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to to Nicodemus, and they talk about being born again, being born from above, being born of the Spirit, the same vocabulary is used, the begotten vocabulary. And so John is consistently presenting this begotten vocabulary to indicate that the Son isn't simply unique, or alone, but he is uniquely begotten. There's a sonship that's implied in that vocabulary of being begotten of the Father. It's the same language that the author of Hebrews picks up. You see, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Pastor John read it this morning, it says, You're my son, today I have begotten you. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we see the author introducing Jesus. Verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God. The exact representation of his nature. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And then in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So just as John is going from a transition in verse 1 of chapter 1, he is the eternal word. Existing with the Father. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh, the begotten one. Alluding back to Psalm 2-7. The author of Hebrews is doing the same thing. He says, I'm introducing you to the heir of all things. The Son in verse 2. The radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. The one who's holding everything together. That one heard the words in verse 5. Today I have begotten you. Again, a direct translation from Psalm verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. And then in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the passage that Nathan spoke of, it says this. It was fitting for him, for, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. That's the begetting idea. We have the same spiritual father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the mystery and the miracle of the incarnation. That the humiliation of the eternal son is actually the glorification of the eternal son. That the second member of the Trinity took on human flesh in order to fully identify with us and then ultimately be able to call us brothers and sisters and never being ashamed to call us that, to have that kind of a relationship with us. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you are, he's not ashamed to call you brother. It doesn't negate obedience. 
It doesn't minimize holiness and sanctification and love for Christ, but it does indicate that we are his siblings forever. Because eternal life is forever. And the proof of Jesus not being ashamed to call us brothers is at the end of the Gospel of John. You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone abandoned him. Peter denied him three times. And then when Jesus meets them for the first time after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he comes and in chapter 21, verse 5, he says, Brothers, children. The first time they talk in chapter 20, verse 19, he says, Peace to you. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't call them to repentance. He doesn't put them in the corner to contemplate what they've done. He says, Peace. Jesus is a compassionate and kind older brother. And when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the compassion of our Savior, the kindness of our Savior. And he's so committed to us that at the end of chapter 17, he says this in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus communicates three things here. First of all, there's a sharing of his glory. The glory that I have, I have given to them. What was that glory during the life of Christ? It's obedience to the Father. It's the fulfillment of the will of God. And he says in 17.4, I glorified you by fulfilling the work that you have given me to do. So when we fulfill the mission of Christ, when we're engaged in the work of Christ, we are glorifying the Father. The proof of that is in chapter 21, verse 19. Because after Jesus calls Peter to follow him along the Sea of Galilee, after Peter declares, yes, he loves him, yes, he loves him, yes, he loves him, Jesus says to him, when you are old, they will stretch out your hands and they will kill you. It's a prophecy about Peter's crucifixion upside down. And in this way, you will glorify me. So even Peter's crucifixion was a way to symbolize the glory of Christ and to glorify Christ. So Jesus shares his glory with us and thereby is committed to us. The second way he's committed to us is the fact that he engages the Father to love us with the same quality of love with which the Father loves the Son. That's verse 23. And in verse 24, Jesus says, And I want them to be with me forever where I am to see my glory. So Jesus' commitment now is not just temporal, it's eternal. He wants us to be with him. That's his commitment to the highest degree and the final degree. And we will see him face to face. That is what 1 John chapter 3 says. And if we have this hope of seeing him face to face, seeing his glory, John says, we purify ourselves daily. This is the miracle of Christmas. That in the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. We're able to see it. Number four, and we're going to move fast. The fourth aspect 
of the incarnation is the provision of grace and truth. The provision of grace and truth. The end of verse 14 said that we have received grace and truth. Verse 16, for out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. He's now using the idea of the grace of God as Jesus, the one who brought salvation to all men. Jesus embodies grace and thereby offers us salvation. We have received in verse 16 grace upon grace. The imagery here is like a wave. And waves keep coming at the shore and keep hitting the shore, keep pounding the shore. And we are being continuously introduced to the grace of Christ. He keeps giving us grace after grace after grace like a wave after wave after wave hits the shore. In Moses, law and truth came. Or law was given, rather. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John isn't describing the law as in some way evil. But he is saying that the law came through Moses. Grace through Christ. Paul explains in Galatians 3 that the law was unable to save. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10 says the same. That all those sacrifices could never take away guilt, could never take away sin. Grace was necessary. Grace that Jesus Christ Brought. And in Romans 10, 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus fulfilled the law. He extends grace to us, and we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. Not of our works. If you're not a believer here this evening, and you're trying to fully grasp what Christmas is, it is this simple message, that Christmas is the coming of the grace of God into this world In Jesus Christ. And you don't have to try to fulfill the law of God on your own again. Jesus fulfilled it. And then if you believe in him and if you confess your sins, he he promises to forgive you those sins. And he then gives you his righteousness. The fulfillment of the law that he actually accomplished, it is imputed to your account. And then God sees you as he sees Christ. A perfect individual qualified to spend eternity with him. This is the coming of grace and truth, the provision of grace and truth in the incarnation. And finally, the fifth aspect is the proclamation of God the Father. The proclamation of God the Father, we see that in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the proclamation of God the Father that only Jesus is qualified to fulfill. John emphatically says, no one at any time has seen God except one, the only begotten one. So because Jesus is the only son of the Father, because he's the only representative of the Father, he's the only one who brings grace and truth. He's the only one who was in active communion face-to-face with the Father from 1-1. He's the one who's existed eternally with the Father. He's the only one who fully reflects the glory of God. He alone is in the bosom of the Father, verse 18. Therefore, he alone qualifies to reveal the Father. This is the climax of the prologue. That everything is building up to this moment in the incarnation. 
It's not just about the second member taking on a human body. He did that in order to reveal the Father to us, in order for us to know the Father, in order for us to gain eternal life, because eternal life is the knowledge of the Father, John 17, 3. This is the buildup and the climax of the incarnation. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly in John 10, 10. And the way we get access to that life is to know who the Father is. And then for the rest of our life here and in eternity, we continue to know the Father. We continue to experience eternal life because Jesus brought it to us and reveals the Father. And in John 17 and verse 6, he says, I have made your name known to them, those whom you have given me. They've accepted it. They've believed it. They're yours. And now I'm sending them on a mission to pass on that message to everyone after them. That message has been entrusted to us. If you're a believer, you have been given the message of the gospel to convey it to the people around you at Christmas. And the message is simple. Jesus came to bring grace and truth into a world of lies. And if you believe in him, and if you confess your sins, he will forgive you. And you will spend eternity gazing at the glory of Christ. The incarnation is the reflection of the Son as he permanently possesses human nature. The incarnation is the presence of God with man. It is the Son perfectly reflecting the glory of God. The incarnation is the Son providing for us grace and truth. It is the Son proclaiming the Father to us that leads us to salvation. And I close with a prayer from the Puritans. What will I render to you for this gift of gifts? Your own dear son. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above. He was born like me that I may become like him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indivisible unity, the uncreated and the created. Here in his wisdom, when I was undone with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost, as man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. Let me hear good tidings of great joy. And hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore, my conscience bathed in an ocean of peace, my eyes lifted up to a reconciled father. Place me with the ox, the donkey, the camel, the goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in him Consider myself delivered from sin. That's the incarnation. We have been delivered from sin. Lord God, we thank you for your son, the incarnate one, permanently existing in his divine and in his human natures. We thank you for the humiliation of Christ and his exaltation. And we bow our hearts and our knees, asking to forgive us of our sins. And I pray for those who haven't done so, 
that you would move in their hearts and as the Holy Spirit alone gives life, that you would give them life and you would bring them into your kingdom to behold your glory in the face of Christ for eternity. We pray this to the honor of the entire Trinity in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.